This is Baffled with David DeRoche. This is episode six, a discussion about diversity and ethics in journalism with Professor Wasim Ahmad. Wasim, first of all, thanks so much for joining us on Baffled today. Appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me. So you're actually the first person that we're interviewing on our little podcast here. So very excited to have you on. Up to this point, people have only heard my rambling voice and maybe a few others here and there. Uh, But now they finally get to hear somebody other than me talk about some journalism stuff. So Wasim, just so you know, I've set the bar pretty low on these last five episodes. So all you really have to do is be somewhat coherent for our podcast and uh, we'll sound better than ever. So uh, you think you could do that for us? I'll try my best. (laughs) Awesome. So real quick, just to give our listeners a heads up on who you actually are, uh, you're currently an assistant teaching professor at Quinnipiac University of Journalism, where I also work. You started here just a few months before I did, which I didn't know, so uh, back in 2019. And you've also taught at Stony Brook and Syracuse Universities. You've worked at newspapers in Minnesota, Florida, and New York. You also uh, continue to do freelance photography. And I was checking out uh, some of the other sites that you've had stuff published on, a lot of different stuff that you've been doing out there. And just excited to have you here to talk about photojournalism, ethics, and diversity. So we got a lot of ground to cover, and I'm going to get right into it. Start by talking about the reason why our producer, Grace McGuire, suggested you speak with us, which is a, a class that you teach here at Quinnipiac, and it has to do with uh, diversity in the newsroom. And I want to talk to you about that specific value, not necessarily just having a diverse a diverse staff in the newsroom, but actually seeking diverse sources, right, as a newsroom. So those are two kind of different but related things. And I also want to talk about, again, journalism, uh, photojournalism in the modern age and, you know, some issues around ethics that you might uh, come across or some trends around within et- the ethical sphere related to photojournalism that you experience or, or have come across recently, which is, I know, is, again, something you're interested in. And speaking of actual ethics, I know you wrote a few pieces for iMedia Ethics back in 2013. I dug those up. And it's funnily enough, so I actually was interviewed by them in 2012 for a blog that I had started with a, a coworker called Saving Ethical Journalism. So you and I have a iMedia Ethics connection, ethical journalism connection, and we both started Quinnipiac in 2019. So there you go. Small world. It was just we've been like two ships passing in the night before, and we didn't even realize it. Multiple times, just and finally, finally, we're convening here on this podcast episode. So let's get into this idea of newsroom diversity. I want to give you some time to dig into the things that you care about, but just for our listeners to lay out sort of some numbers for us, or to put this conversation into context, there is actually some good news around this this idea of diversity. Newsrooms have been aware that it's a problem for some time, so that's good. And actually, women now currently make up the majority of newsrooms in NPR at USA Today, I think a couple of other major news outlets. But the sad reality is, right, is that you know 40% of the population in the United States are racial or ethnic minorities. But according to the 2018 Pew analysis, only about 23% of newsroom staff are non-white. And newsrooms are also very disproportionately white male. I mean, it's an industry, again, that's been aware of this for decades. I think the uh, the American Society of Newspaper Editors back in, in 1978 said, by 2000, we want our newsrooms to reflect the population of the United States. And they've just failed miserably at that. So, so tell me, why do you think it's so hard for newsrooms to actually diversify? What's going on here? 
Interesting, you, you mentioned the American Society of Newspaper Editors, because that uh, initiative you're talking about is Goal 2000, where they're trying to get newsrooms to reflect the diversity in the population in their newsrooms. And while a worthy and noble effort, it failed for a number of reasons. Going back a little bit in the history of ASNE, uh, was that there's just a lot of entrenched racism in the organization itself. For instance, I don't believe they admitted their first black editor um, until somewhere in the 50s or 60s. I'd have to look up the exact number. But if you asked any of the upper echelons of ASNE, the American Society of Newspaper Editors, as to why, you'd get answers like, oh, well, you know, you know, none of the uh, you know newspapers with black editors or black publications meet our circulation threshold, or they're not dailies, or whatever. But we're not excluding black people, but the newspapers just don't meet our requirements. And in some ways, that created this de facto uh, segregation in a way that that you would not admit these newspaper editors because they didn't meet your circulation requirements, or they didn't meet the the daily publishing requirements. But, you know, how could they? Because they started off so far behind newspapers that were run by white male editors. Um, And so, you know, that was one problem is that even when Goal 2000 was created in, I believe it was the 70s in the organization, um, you know, there was still not a large amount of diversity in ASNE itself. Um, But then the other problem, and this goes with diversifying any newsroom, it's, it's one thing to hire minorities almost as tokens in a newsroom, if you will, uh, to be your reporters and your uh, copy editors or whatever. It's another thing to place minorities or to, to encourage and recruit minorities to be the upper echelons of management uh, a news organization. And that's more important, I would say, than just hiring a ton of low-level reporters. Uh, I don't know how much you want me to get into my own experiences with this in the newsroom. Oh, please. Absolutely. Uh, But for instance, I worked at the St. Cloud Times in St. Cloud, Minnesota. And uh, this was in the early 2000s. And there is very clear to see I was one of the few minorities in the newsroom. And Gannett at the time had lots of different policies. They had a policy called mainstreaming, where if you wrote a story you had to make sure that you sought out a minority to be in that story. Uh, but we also had a lot of other, I would describe as ham-fisted policies um, about diversity. It, I was a copy editor. I would design pages. If there was a minority quoted in a story, you would have to rearrange and edit the story so that minority would, if we could, appear before the jump. Now, a jump, uh, I guess in this digital age, people don't really know what that is. In the newspaper, you have that front page of the section, and then you jump to the interior of the paper, and you'd want that minority to appear on the front page, on the front of that section. We also had something that was put in place by the editor at the time, Susan Eaney. It was called the Diversity Board. And this is something that I would describe as another ham-fisted approach at, at diversity. And it was really weird. And I think this is where having minorities in the management levels would probably prevent something so terrible as this from happening. Whenever a minority would appear in the newspaper, you know, the editor or the managing editor would come out and we'd put it on the board and we, all right, Hey, we got one today, guys, you know, and, and they put it right up on that diversity board. And I, I had a real issue with that. And I, I voiced my concerns about those issues, but, um, 
it, it kind of fell on deaf ears. Uh, mm. And I think when you don't have people at the top levels of newsroom management to understand why something like the diversity board is a problem, you, you're going to get that. And I can say that when I've worked at places where upper management has been people of color and minorities and women, it's been a different experience for sure. Mm. And I'm wondering, and I think obviously I think the key here probably is this, the general sense of, of biases, of prejudices, of latent racism and stuff like that, that is inherent in a lot of, of people, human beings. But I'm wondering, like, what do you think can happen in newsrooms to have them look at it in a different way? Like, how can they, you know, certainly having minority, uh, minorities in positions of, of uh, upper management can help. But it also kind of takes some individual level like, like reflection, right? To really, to really be able to appreciate and value diversity. So what do you think individual journalists can do to sort of to embrace this idea of diversity more and not just think of it as a thing that they can then you know, do so they can put it up on a board? Well, I think that um, you're starting to see a sea change in um, uh, the values that minority journalists bring to newspapers. And I think that one of the things that I'm, I'm seeing, especially within the last year, and if I had to pinpoint a spot in time, I would say especially since the murder of George Floyd, um, that individual journalists have been pushing their newsrooms and calling for change and poking upper management about these issues. Um, I'm going to cite two examples in particular that I think are really wonderful of the the collective action that minorities in newsrooms can take. Um, you know, the first one is the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette was the home of uh, Pulitzer Prize winning photographer Michael Santiago. Um, he won a Pulitzer for his uh, work on the Tree of Life synagogue shootings. And then uh, Alexis Johnson, who was a black reporter, both black, at the um, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And so they, I believe, really started the dialogue around the role of minorities in newsrooms and what, um, not started, but have really elevated the dialogue recently. Um, Alexis Johnson tweeted, one could say this is not necessarily the most career smart move, but <laughs> but this is what she did. And, and she's not wrong. She tweeted um, a photo of the aftermath of a Kenny Chesney concert. Mm. And it showed like the debris and the garbage and the tweet. Uh, I don't remember the exact tweet, but it was um, something like, you know, wow, look at these... Uh, Look at the mess and horror that these Black Lives Matter looters and rioters left uh, <laughs> after their protest. Oh, wait, no. These are scenes <laughs> after a Kenny Chesney concert. <laughs> and so uh, the response from the, uh, the paper's management was swift. Oh, of course. Um, they pulled her off of covering Black Lives Matter oh, entirely. Wow. Um, and then Michael Santiago tweeted in support. You know, I stand with Alexis and everything. Mm. And then so did many other people from the newspaper. What ended up happening was uh, the editor of the paper, Keith Burris, wrote an editorial, which this I'd never seen before. He's a white male editor, and he publicly in this editorial attacked his own staff, Michael and Alexis in particular. Oh, wow. Um, talking about how they really destroyed the rules of objectivity in journalism that, uh, you know, these, this is, these were not ethical actions that these journalists did and that, you know, there's a standard that journalists must adhere to about neutrality and everything. 
Um, and, and basically, in essence, what he was saying in this editorial was that a journalist uttering the words or showing support in any way for Black Lives Matter was inherently making a political statement, was inherently not being objective, and therefore could not cover this sort of story. That's just kind of appalling to me because journalists in other ways do that all the time. I, you know, I feel like most journalists, and you know, we have an episode about this, you know, get into journalism out of a sense of justice. Like they think the world is wrong and so they want to right the wrongs. And that bias manifests itself in all kinds of ways. And I think what's particularly interesting about this case is that, you know, it was race related, right? And I imagine if if a, a white reporter had come out and said something similar about a white woman, right, who had who had gone missing and made some kind of comment, because you see that all the time, right? We see these like the Gabby Petito story where people are commenting all the time about what's going on. You never see an editorial saying, you know, how dare you, uh, you know, question what happened in this case with this white woman that's impeding your objectivity. You know, so it's really interesting to see how some journalists can get away with actions that do appear to impede their objectivity and some clearly cannot. And this, this idea that, that it happens specifically with, with black journalists, that's been coming out very well, frequently, right? Here's the, here's the kicker with Alexis Johnson. Her father is a retired state trooper. Oh, wow. And so if anybody would be really qualified to cover Black Lives Matter, it would be, it would be her. Right. But let's, let's take this even further. Um, the uh, editor of the paper is, is writing this, editorial about objectivity and the need to be objective and that sort of thing. And it comes out a few days after that editorial that he was buddy, buddy with Donald Trump and flew around on his private plane. Of course. And so here he is talking about objectivity, but you're on a plane. Hey, here we are with Donald Trump, you you know, so, which is kind of like breaking journalism one-on-one rules, right? I mean, come on. Well, so my, my question then becomes, to reporters, especially minority reporters, uh, going into the business is whose objectivity are you holding up? Right. Right. Exactly. Because objectivity is not a universal across the board. Everybody's seeing things the same way. Like the idea of neutrality, it's always been an illusion in my mind anyway, because we, nobody comes from a place of neutrality. We all come from a place of experience and especially minorities are coming from a place of generally coming from a place where their experiences are are harder uh, just because we they you know live among systemic racism and so you know not being able to recognize that i think is a huge fault of the system you know my town was half black half white so i was very used to growing up around black people so i i learned very quickly about how the world was but there were other communities that i was not familiar with that I had to learn about later and i you know i credit just journalists really good journalists uh, by illuminating those things for me personally. Um, but I wonder, you know, how it's such, or how and why it can be such a persistent thing at such high levels of an industry that, that, that really has such, it's so self-righteous, you know, a lot of journalists, you know, they so, you know, feel like they're doing the right thing. And that still, there's this persistent thing that exists, this like latent racism that still, again, to your point, allows some kind of, um, uh, breaking of the rules and, and doesn't allow other kinds of breaking of the rules. It's kind of scary that it's so persistent. Well, yeah. And to go back to your original question about this too, you're talking about what can minorities do on an even larger scale when the Philadelphia Inquirer, when covering this sort of covering these protests, they actually had a headline, you know, they were addressing the looters and stuff in an opinion piece. 
And the headline was Buildings Matter Too. Right. Oof. And this was a huge, caused a huge stir amongst the staff. And collectively, 80 journalists did a sick out or a byline strike uh, that, like, you know, they wrote a letter to the management talking about the issues here. And one of the lines that stuck out from that, that letter that they all collectively signed was, you know, we can't keep being told to cover two sides to a story. There are no two sides to right. You know, um, and and they really took a stand against the kinds of institutionalized racism. Right. And uh, you know, the editors stepped down, and it was a whole wow. whole thing after that. And I think that's the kind of action that we can really hold newspapers and publications to account. It's time to speak up about it. Right. And I think that we are in an in a time and an era where it is far safer to speak up about it than it was in the past. It's interesting you mentioned that because I think there was a comedian who talked about that, uh, where he talks about, you know, every time a black person brings up slavery, you know, a large portion of the white community is like, just forget that. That was 150 years ago, but 9-11, never forget, never forget. And so his thing was, yeah, all buildings matter, right? Right, <laughs> you, yeah, I, you know. And you say something like that, and immediately, you know, people who... You know their heads explode, or they should they should explode because they're you know so disconnected from the reality of an entire population of people, but yet they're so focused on this this one event. But both events, to your point, it's not two sides. Both events are significant, but the fact that we we like to create these two sides things it makes those conversations so much more polarizing and so much more um, you know unnecessarily heated because you know we're, we're sort of you know taught to think in these ways. And when I say it's a lot of time to like talk about it now, like you know. Alexis Johnson is now at Vice and Michael Santiago is now at Getty Images. It's worked out for them. And I think that, you know, speaking truth to power was important. Um, when I spoke up about the diversity board in 2005, I guess it was at the newspaper, it did not go well for my career there. Mm. Uh, you know, I actually, you know, what I suppose was one of the final nails in the coffin there was I used to write an editorial about being being a brown guy in Minnesota in St. Cloud, really. Mm. And, you know, I wrote about how one time at a stoplight, someone stopped at the light, they rolled down their window, and they they, they, they called me a fucking terrorist shit. That's what I was called Oof. in a light. Okay. And I wrote about it. You know, here I am, was it 17 years or 16 years later? Still, I still remember that moment. And the thrust of my editorial, my column, I had a regular column, was that I'm going to remember this. I'm still remembering it right now. I'm relaying it to you right now. But that guy, he probably does that to everybody. He doesn't mm. remember that. And that column was was pulled from the paper by the editor, that same editor who came up with the diversity board, who uh, said that kind of stuff doesn't happen in St. Cloud. What? Like, well, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't happen to you. They actually <laughs> replaced my. They replaced my column with Leonard Pitts, which if you're going to replace me, Leonard Pitts is a great guy to replace me with. <laughs> but but she actually pulled it, saying that that kind of stuff doesn't happen in St. Cloud. And wow. um, when I went to the top to the publisher of the paper, um, who was a white male, and explained that I I felt like this was some kind of racism directed at me. Um, the response I got was I got a meeting with the publisher and the, the editor and they basically gaslit me and said, well, we never said that sort of stuff. I don't oh know. We never God. said anything like that. You're, you're going a little crazy. We think you should seek some counseling for what? this. Um, that's actually what happened. And, oh, uh, I'm sorry. um, you know, it took me many years to be able to talk about this freely, but I, I do yeah. now. And I, uh, in, instead of taking them up on their offer for counseling, I, uh, I found a, a, a job with a, a an editor who who uh, was a black male and um i think i 
did much better and thrived much better under someone who understood the challenges of being a minority in the newsroom. Oh, yeah. And um, instead of um, continuing to work at St. Cloud after that, I turned in my resignation. Well, that's the best uh, therapy you probably could have had is, is get rid of that toxic work environment. That was probably doing not good things to your mental health, I can imagine. And no, so, felt great. Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine. And, and and I think that's that's the point, right? Me as a white man literally saying, I can only imagine because I, I don't experience those things, right? So I, I think back on all the interactions I've ever had with police, some good, not some not so good. But there are some times when I should have been treated harsher than I was because of what had happened, right? Like in, just objectively, and I was not. And so it's been very clear to me that there is that there's these two systems, at least two systems, probably more, uh, you know, depending on, you know, if you're gay, if you're black or brown or how black you might be, right, or what you're wearing, all those things, you know, are going to sort of dictate how you're going to, those interactions with a lot of police officers, not not every cop, obviously, but, you know, I think we've seen enough to be able to say that that is the case generally. I want to turn a little bit, you know, still talk about this idea of diversity, but more within the the idea of photojournalism context, because that's your, your expertise. I was at uh, the NPR member station in Hartford for five years. Uh, and prior to that, I was in newspapers. We did source audits uh, where we would go back and look at, uh, this was at, at WNPR, like the past six months of stories and then see who we talked to in those stories and create a spreadsheet. And you know, the idea was to see how diverse our sources were. Uh, and I think we tracked you know, gender, race, and those kinds of things. I mean, I, I like the idea behind it. But it was icky for, to me, at least for a couple of reasons. First, we never asked those people how they identify, right? Do you identify as black or are you Latina or, you know, are you a woman? Are you identify as, uh, as they, you know, those are questions we never asked. And so we were making assumptions about it. And then it also kind of led to this thing that we're also talking about this idea that, you know, we're going to seek that diverse source just to check the box and not really embody that. And I'm wondering how that manifests itself this idea in in photos, right? So you go out to take a photo of an event, there might be a diverse group of people that you can grab photos of, there might not. So I'm wondering, is it, you know, does the, does the event sort of dictate how diverse your sources can be? Or can any sort of photojournalistic assignment value diversity as a value when you're going out to do this thing? There is a way you can always have diversity as a core value. What was that look like in practice? Like what, what sort of things could a photojournalist tell themselves and they're going out to an assignment to, to sort of embody that value? So um, I, I love that you use the word icky to describe that because it, it's totally icky. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the counting, the, the, you know, how do you enter? We didn't ask somebody to identify and you're counting it this and that way. Other way. Right. At the end of the day, this, this goes right back to that having upper management that understands mm. diversity because you're not going to be able to manufacture diversity I've covered uh, a George W. Bush rally in 2004 in St. Cloud, Minnesota. How much diversity do you think was there? <laughs> right. You know, you can't you can't manufacture that kind of diversity. And then you're in kind of misrepresenting, right? The actual reality. If it's you take you find the only black people there and take a photo of them, is that actual representational of the group, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's the job of marketing departments. They're the ones who are looking for those people or, or orchestrating those scenes. We're journalists, we're covering the scenes. The key to get diversity in photojournalism is to cover diverse and topics and underserved communities. Mm. If you are doing stories about communities that are not ordinarily covered, the diversity flows from there. And that requires that thinking, that higher level thinking from the top 
about what communities are we missing and not grabbing in our coverage. And that's how you get diversity in it. You can't manufacture diversity in, in photojournalism. And that comes from having diverse management. So that's a great point. So it's not necessarily the the event or specific thing that's happening, but the community that you're going to focus on because there are events, right? We get things through the wire, you know, this is happening there, this is happening there. And, you know, what sort of criteria are editors using when they're going through that list, right? When they're saying, oh, we got this, you know, protest, um, you know, for women's rights in this town and we got a protest for Black Lives Matter in this town and we got a, you know, protest for, I don't know, white men's rights, right? In this town, like how do they, you know, the sort of things that, that are discussed, you know, it, a lot of things come into play. A lot of, there are a lot of factors of so geography. How far is it? Like, do we know anybody in the town? Who do we know? But taking into, into account that very specific thing, how underrepresented are, is this community in our journalism should probably take a much higher place in front of things like geography or who we know, because we don't know somebody there because we're not covering it, right? So it's like, let's get into that community. Let's spend a little more time, a little more resources getting to know that community. So that way, when things do happen, we're better positioned to cover them fairly rather than parachuting out of nowhere and saying, oh, hey, we're here because you're a black community. We've never talked to you before, but this seems like an important story. Well, the, the other part too, and that you just uh, used the word parachute, I think that was such a good word, is that one of the problems that I'm definitely seeing in photojournalism that uh, iMedia Ethics actually has covered quite a bit um, has been the parachuting of generally white male journalists oh, into you know brown and black communities and treating it like a zoo, um, mm -hmm. and that's not that's not the way it should be. You know what's interesting is Magnum, especially Magnum Seven. These photo collectives are really guilty of this. They'll go to you know. Africa and take pictures of um, uh, children that are being exploited, raped, whatever, and they'll write a, a caption that says "child sex workers" and so and so. Oh, no and, name. And they're, they're not know who they are. Don't even care. You, you know, yeah, they don't have any name. But more than that, they're not child sex workers. They're victims of rape. Right. That's right. That's what they are. Right. And you're showing their photos. Would you Would you show the photos of young white children in the United States? Right. That way and portray it that way. Right. But here, the, these photo collectives are using these photos of black and brown bodies to promote workshops and their journalism Oof. and buy a poster of this. Right. And it's just, again, you know, you can't just parachute as a white person in these communities and cover them like they're zoos. You right. have to cover these communities like human beings. Right. They're people. They're human beings. And I think you talked about one of those instances, I think it was a new town where a photographer had taken a photo of a woman praying and she was in this, you know, she was praying and then she heard the clicking sounds and she got all angry and, and then they didn't even like, you know, identify who she was, but you know, she came out and identified herself. And it's a little bit different from what you're talking about, but it's the same kind of thing as, you know, when journalists feel like they can just go to a place, not know anybody and just you know, feel like they're in a zoo, like literally what you're saying. And you know, and I, I have definitely done this. So when, when Michael Brown was shot, um, I actually was, uh, had left my job and I was like, I got to do something. I had just this, this burning desire to go to Ferguson, Missouri, just to back up a little bit. I had also spent time in Ethiopia doing a similar kind of thing, feeling like, you know, I could go here and, and help the people of Ethiopia with my words. And, you know, also sort of naively thinking that, you know, I, I had that capacity. And so I, I see and have experienced what it's like to be on, to be parachuting, right? And at least for me, you know, having been on the negative side of that, I think that had set me up a little bit when I was in Ferguson to not 
be that person to go. And I spent the first couple of days just meeting people and, you know, just introducing myself and saying, Hey, I'm here. What's your story? Just getting to know some people. And I think that's the thing that I think drives me crazy about journalists is that, you know, I think it's possible to go to a location where you don't know anybody, where you are alien, where you don't look like the people you're covering, but cover them fairly. And I think it's exactly to your point, they're human beings. They're not subjects for you to exploit for your story. They're not subjects to get, you know, their image on the front of your website. And I think, and again, what drives me crazy about so many journalists, even outside of this process, is that they're so obsessed with the story that they forget that these are people with lives that, that, have backgrounds, that have futures, that have communities they have to continue to live in. And so I always tell my students, I say, you're a person first, you're a human being first and be a journalist second. And if you can do that, people will trust you. And so focus on the human aspects first and then focus on your journalism. Otherwise, people will just continue to look at you as, as just seeking to exploit them for your story. And I, I think what, one of the things you said there about going to a place, getting to know people, connecting with them, that's the most important. That's the most important thing. And I, I've and you've 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 clearly read my iMedia ethics stuff, so you can see. <laughs> yeah. I have frequently called out the you know journalists who just don't do the journalism part of journalism. Right. You have to talk to people. Right. Otherwise, you're not doing the job there. So I want to shift the conversation a little bit and just talk about you know being a photojournalist generally. Uh, you know, any journalist today is essentially a photojournalist, whether they have training or not. I know when I first had my first newspaper job in 2008, you know, my, my editor was like, you know, go cover this thing and take some photos. And the photos I took were then printed in on 10,000 copies. And I was like, oh, wow. Like nobody told me how to compose a photo. Nobody told me what about ethics, like, you know, getting names. Like I just, you know, went and did the thing. And I feel like, you know, maybe we've gotten better nowadays, but I also just sort of wonder, you know, from your perspective, um, you know, because photos are such a thing now, right? Like it's, you know, I don't know what that, there's like a, there's like a saying about the number of photos that are taken every year and how they, they double all the photos in existence up to the previous year or something like that, just that they're so inundated with photos these days. Do you feel like just that very reality, um, makes it harder for there to be concern about the ethics around photojournalism just because there's so many photos out there. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the hard part too is that, you know, being a photojournalist doesn't take a whole lot of training. Right. Like it used to. Anybody can take a photo with their phone and stuff like that. And so a lot of the ethics are just being thrown out the window. A lot of the concerns about diversity are being thrown out the window. So um you know, it's it's hard. And that's why I still think, obviously, I teach it here at Quinnipiac. I think there is a huge value in teaching people the right way to go about photos, the right way, uh, the ethical way to do things. And so, you know, for anybody that says that, you know, this training isn't necessary, anybody can go out there, be a journalist, do photos. Training's important so we don't keep repeating these mistakes around diversity and ethics that we've made in the past. Mm. Any, I want to get you one more chance to offer your final thoughts. And just generally, um, are there any photojournalistic trends that you see today that you're happy about or that you worry about? What can you just tell me generally um, about about that? You know, a lot of my research in, in my own uh, work is about uh, artificial intelligence and algorithms in photography and our you know, is that kind of on-the-fly photo editing on your phone acceptable? Is it journalistically and ethically acceptable to use portrait mode and do those kinds of edits mm -hmm. and smooth out skin? And I think that's where the training comes in 
to play is that, you know, ethical journalists know that maybe these aren't quite ethical or why they should or shouldn't be used. And I think that you're starting to see that computers are just taken and algorithms are just taking over a lot of the editing and we're getting into the world of deep fakes mm. and <laughs> artificially generated images that it's going to be really hard to tell what's real. And that's, that's a scary thing to me. Oh man, that's a topic for an entirely other podcast. <laughs> Professor Wasim Ahmad, thank you so much for joining us today on Baffle to talk about uh, diversity and photojournalism ethics. Really appreciate your time. All right, Homo Sapiens, that's all for today. We're six episodes deep and we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think. What can I be doing better? Is there something I've really gotten wrong? Maybe I've missed something. I want to know. How do you think our interview went today? Also want to talk to you. I want to talk to you about journalism. Are we getting some things right? Or are we getting some things wrong? You can give me a shout on Twitter at SavingEJ or you can email me at david.deroche at qu.edu. That's david.desrochhes at qu.edu. This podcast is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our producer is Grace McGuire. Our social media coordinator is Jillian Catalano. Our videographer is Jake McCarthy. Please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice. To learn more about this podcast and other ones we do here at Quinnipiac, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Baffle with David DeRoche. Until next time.